clean energy transitions are for and about people. They're about making people's lives better. They're about enhancing development, eliminating energy poverty and improving equity, and of course, mitigating the worst impacts of climate change. This is Brian Motherway from the IEA, the International Energy Agency. Clean energy transitions will not succeed unless they are fair and inclusive and perceived to be so. We see challenges in many parts of the world where questions of acceptance and willingness to accept change are causing difficulties. And in our view, this issue is not getting enough attention in policymaking. Okay, there's a big issue here. The world badly needs a green transition. Moving away from fossil fuels and shifting to clean energy sources is an important step in the fight against climate change. But this transition comes with an initial cost. Hundreds of thousands of people might lose their jobs. From workers in European coal mines or North American oil rigs to employees in the car industry in Asia. Energy prices could also skyrocket. And pristine landscapes can be altered to make way for green energy production from wind turbines, for example. That's why Brian Motherway, head of energy efficiency at the IEA, demands what he calls a people-centered clean energy transition. Because if people can't keep their jobs and a certain standard of living, why would they support a green transition? That's why it's important that the transition takes people's everyday lives into account. This is in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. One of the 17 goals focuses on access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy by 2030. In this episode, we'll look at how far we've come in reaching that goal, and we'll learn about how the Nordic countries and Japan are trying to make climate action more equal. I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. Probably what is at the foremost of people's minds, especially when you use a term like just transition, is, of course, jobs. The level of investment we see in clean energy recoveries is going to create 5 million new jobs over the next couple of years, which is obviously very good news. And over the coming years and decades, we know that clean energy will create many millions of very good jobs right around the world. But we also know that jobs will be lost. And we also know that sometimes the people who lose their jobs will not necessarily be easily able to benefit from new jobs unless policies are very well designed to retrain and redeploy. In some cases, you know, significant finance will be required to support communities or individuals who might be negatively affected. And I think on most people's minds, for very understandable reason, people in sectors, whether it's coal or the manufacture of combustion engine vehicles or, or other, other sectors which know change is coming, people in those sectors have very genuine and, and very legitimate fears about their futures, about, about their families, about their employment, about their well-being. And it, it's a very deep, deep issue and must be at the centre of government's thinking right from the start to reassure those people, to protect them and to make sure that the benefits are as widely felt as possible. Brian brings up his concerns about the transition at a Nordic Talks event organised by the Nordic embassies and the Nordic Innovation House in Tokyo. The Nordic countries are considered to be frontrunners when it comes to investing in new energy technologies. And in Japan, businesses and the government are on the brink of considerable investments in renewable energy sources. 
In fact, the purpose of the event is to get Japanese and Nordic perspectives on how to complete a fair transition to cleaner energy sources. Brian's point about the risk of people losing their jobs is echoed by Hokon Salin. He's a senior researcher at CICERO, the Centre for International Climate Research. Hokan joins the discussion from Norway. One particular challenge here, I think, is that uh, the decarbonisation c- comes on top of existing megatrends, in particular globalisation and automation, which uh, has a negative effect on uh, blue-collar workers in uh, industrial countries. And uh, this group uh, could also have legitimate fears that they will be further uh, negatively affected by uh, decarbonization policies. Resistance to a green transition in the energy sector can also come from the fossil fuel industry. It's in their interest to maintain business as usual, and they also have strong lobbying power on their side. So according to Hokan, it's important to reduce the influence of these already established industries. Many historical transitions of, the en- of energy systems have been made possible by the absence, weakness or deliberate disarming of incumbent coalitions. So uh, to achieve a green transition is not only about uh, empowering green uh, technologies, but also about depowering the incumbent uh, fossil-based technologies. Japan is no exception. Joining the discussion is Monica Nagashima. She documents the influence of old industries at Influence Map, an independent think tank mapping how business and finance are impacting the climate crisis. We have an open source platform where we measure, score, and analyze how companies and industry associations are influencing climate and energy policies around the world. And uh, last year in August, uh, we published a report on how Japanese industry groups are um, influencing uh, climate policies here in Japan. And we found that only a narrow group of sectors representing less than 10% of Japan's GDP value added are actively engaging on climate policy. And these sectors are iron and steel, electric power, automotive production, cement, electrical machinery, oil petrochemicals, and coal. And for years, these sectors have been advocating for policies that are misaligned with the Paris Agreement and are focused on coal power over renewable energy. Monica leads Influence Maps content development from her office in Tokyo. The company is responsible for maintaining the world's leading database of climate policy lobbyists. And heavy industries in Japan are influencing policy. When we look at the actual broader economic landscape of Japan, um, over 70% of GDP value added actually comes from the services sector, um, meaning retail and tech sectors and healthcare and so on. And these sectors broadly are very positive on climate. So they have been calling for a higher renewable energy target. For example, um, Sony um, famously last year came out to say that 
if they cannot procure enough renewables, they cannot be competitive globally, and they might have to relocate some of their production outside of Japan to countries that do have stronger renewable energy support. So we have coalitions like the Japan Climate Leaders Partnership, JCLP, calling for 50% renewables. Um, there has another corporate executives group, the Keizai Doyu guys, they have been calling for a 40% renewable energy target by 2030. And finally, we are seeing the renewable energy target go up, but the ambition uh, almost never reaches what these sectors are calling for. And what we see is that government um, committees are dominated by the heavy industry voices. And uh, the major business federation that represents business interests in Japan, Keizanden, um, they are also, their leadership is, has been dominated by the heavy industry sector. And um, what we see them telling the government very closely aligns with the positions of the fossil fuel value chain and not really the retail sector that represents Japan. Lobbying serves several purposes. It can influence concrete political decisions. It can also impact public opinion. And for the lobbyists fighting against a swift green transition, there are some low-hanging fruits out there. Firstly, as consumers, uh, they are affected by increases in the fuel and electricity prices. And those tend not to be very popular among the public and the can lead to protests, which we have seen, for example, uh, in the Yellow West movement in France. We have seen it in Norway also, uh, the uh, resistance, particularly against road tolls, uh, was quite strong uh, a couple of years ago. And we see it all across the world also in developing countries. And in Norway, we also see it, uh, we see public resistance against the uh, renewable power, also uh, based on arguments of nature protection. This we see in particular in the case of wind power where increased local resistance has uh, led to uh, a temporary moratorium on uh, new licenses for wind power on land. Brian acknowledges all of Hokon's concerns, but he also thinks it's possible to strengthen support for the green transition especially because of the urgency of the climate crisis. We talk a lot about the, the, the negative impacts of change, the cost of change, but maybe we don't talk enough about the cost of inaction or the negative impacts of inaction. And it's worth remembering that doing nothing here is not an option. So sometimes when we see resistance to these issues, it must be taken seriously and addressed in a very thorough and meaningful way. But it, it can't be a conversation of, do we do this action or not? It seems to me that people are, are, are quicker to understand what they're against rather than what they're for. And I think that maybe we, we need a stronger sense of the urgency of the situation we find ourselves in. Hokan isn't so sure that talking about climate change in catastrophic terms is the best way forward. I think to motivate, to increase the acceptance and general motivation among the public, I think while the concept, uh, while the scenario of doing nothing is, is certainly scary, um, I'm not sure that that is the best way to motivate people to uh, accept change. I think it is perhaps... Uh, more motivational to focus on 
potential uh, positive side effects of a low-carbon society. For example, uh, a better diet with red, less, less red meat, uh, perhaps reduced work hours and less consumption, but more leisure and uh, a more active, uh, more physically active transportation mm-hmm. are things that uh, potentially could bring also increases in uh, people's welfare. And uh, I think that's something uh, that is missing from the debate on climate change is the positive is uh, focus on the positive side effects of a low carbon uh, society. There will always be both pros and cons to using scare tactics. But at least for some major players, there's no doubt about the urgency of the green transition. I'm talking about the investors, especially pension funds. After all, they need to think decades ahead when investing our money. And they're worried that politicians are not thinking long-term enough. I believe investors around the world are quite uh, concerned by this. Uh, Since the founding of InfluenceMap, we have worked very closely with uh, large pension funds. And particularly pension funds from Northern Europe are um, very interested in our work. Um, So pension funds are universal owners. So they have diversified long-term portfolios that are basically representative of global capital and asset markets, making their return dependent on the continuing good health of the overall economy. Um, And um, these investors, um, they basically see that negative lobbying by a few companies could delay action on climate and place risk to larger parts of the portfolio. And, um, and this is of great concern to them. Hokan agrees with Monica. We also work a bit with investors and businesses. And we see that uh, these actors take the Paris Agreement very seriously, actually. And um, in many instances, they are more proactive uh, the nation states and uh, mm-hmm. the, um, many countries are setting uh, targets for themselves that are um, supposed to be consistent with the uh, with a two degree target or even the one point five degree target and implement and uh, implementing uh, measures to actually reduce emissions and we see and this is partly due to pressure from investors, mm. particularly large um, funds that take a, a very long-term uh, perspective, naturally. So I think uh, there is an interesting interplay there, and it's increasingly recognized by political scientists who study the international negotiations that it's no longer only about nation-states who were traditionally seen as the actors in mm-hmm. international negotiations. We increasingly see that uh, businesses and also uh, subnational governments uh, participate uh, actively at uh, side events and, and other activities at the COP. According to Brian, progress is being made to drive the clean energy transition forward. Two years ago, effectively, no country in the world 
had a net had a firm net zero target for 2050 or, or thereabouts. Now three quarters of the world emissions are covered by such targets, and most recently we've seen Australia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, join that family. And of course, we can look at all of those strategies and see which ones seem more credible and more robust and more firm. Uh-huh. And it's, cause it's always worth remembering that in, in, in the context of all that very laudable ambition, emissions are actually going up. So we at the IEA certainly welcome higher levels of ambition, but we want to see the action and we want to see the policies put in place that's going to make that real. And, and we can't say we're seeing those yet. Uh-huh. I think the youth dimension is really interesting because, of course, we've seen youth activism in the last few years that have really, you know, kind of helped, I really think, in a positive way, focus more attention on this issue. We had a couple of really excellent uh, young people on on our commission who represented the SDG 7, the the Sustainable Development Goal 7 constituency. So we were able to talk to a lot of young people around the world from many different perspectives uh, who bring really rich thinking to this, but also a real sense of drive, a real sense of need to act, a sense of urgency, and quite rightly, a sense of injustice in the sense that that uh, that, that people of my generation are, are giving them this problem and, and we're still not tackling it firmly and, and we expect them to deal with it. And there's something else to consider. While governments talk about carbon neutrality by 2050, some major tech firms have already established targets for 2030 not only for the companies themselves, but also for their supply chains. Take Apple, for example. The giant tech company has announced that they'll stop purchasing products from suppliers that rely on electricity generated by coal and gas. And the ambition is to let this policy spread all the way down the supply chain. And because of this move, Japanese companies like Sony and Panasonic have planned to go carbon neutral by 2030. This logic can be taken one step further. Because if Apple has the power to influence Sony, who then has the power to influence Apple in the first place? The answer is consumers like you and me. I do think that Apple indeed set out these targets because they're seeing more pressure from their consumers. And they have to be transparent about their supply chains. They have to decarbonize their products. And I think consumers play a very, very strong role in in driving that push. But uh, indeed, demand-side companies, so as I've mentioned uh, in our analysis as well, we've seen the retail sector, which is, you know, the demand side, and which actually represents most of the Japanese economy. For this specific reason, because of consumer pressure, they are calling for higher renewable energy targets and um, higher GHG emission standards to be set by the Japanese government in order to remain competitive globally. Brian sees the same pattern. Consumers are driving both business and government to realize that there's more of an appetite for change than maybe would have been understood uh, otherwise. And I think many consumers wonder what they can do because they realize that changes in their lifestyle may not contribute that much to emissions reduction. And that may be true, but I think the signal, when, when particularly when politicians, if you speak to ministers or politicians, they tend to say, we realize there needs to be change, but I'm not sure the voters will come with me. I'm not sure the citizens will accept the change. And I think it's very important that citizens and consumers signal that they are ready to adopt new lifestyles. They are ready to change behaviors, change what they buy and how they use it. Um, even if the savings in itself might be small, for that wider signal of political buy-in. And, and if, it, if, a, if a, 
a consumer or a citizen, if an individual ever asked me what is the most important thing they can do for climate change, I would say is tell your political leaders that this really, really matters to you. And you can do that directly, you can do that by voting, but you can also do it by demonstrating it in your own behaviours. Hokan agrees, but he also finds it necessary to issue a little warning. Yeah, I agree that the most important uh, action that individuals can take is through politics, particularly voting. And I think I don't think we should, uh, while um, individual choices can uh, be important signals, I think we must be careful not to leave the green transition up to uh, consumers. There, this shouldn't be the responsibility of uh, individuals. It should be the responsibility of governments to set the policy framework that uh, facilitate this transition. So pressure for the green transition is going to come from multiple directions. Progressive governments, some of the big multinational firms, pension funds, scientists, consumers, and non-governmental organizations. But as we've heard, there are also some big obstacles in the road ahead. So what do Brian, Monica, and Hokan think are the next steps? Brian first. The action agenda is action. So thank you for all of your targets and for your global ambition. Let's see the action. Let's see the policies on the ground. And we need to see them in 2022, not in 2031, 2032. And equally, as as governments make their plans for clean energy transitions for net zero, people-centered transitions, people-centered thinking needs to be central. If a country is developing a strategy for hydrogen or a strategy for wind or a strategy for CCUS, they should be developing a strategy for people-centered transitions. How are they going to make sure that their transitions are people-centered and inclusive and bring most benefits? And I think that's very urgent. And now, Monica. Top priority is reforming uh, the current lobbying system to make sure that the 10% of Japanese GDP that actually holds power uh, and that focuses on fossil fuel-based uh, messaging, that um, that power is split more evenly among um, the Japanese economy and that there is a fair representation of voices. And finally, Hokan. First, we need the inclusive processes involving in particular labor unions. Uh, we need... Um, to couple uh, decarbonization policies with redistributive measures to take away uh, potentially um, negative distributional effects. And this could be done, for example, by revenue recycling, uh, using tax revenue to lower other taxes or uh, to support low-income households. And uh, perhaps most importantly, as uh, Brian Motherway mentioned, we need a focus on creating jobs, in particularly in particular blue-collar jobs, uh, including a focus on retraining. Uh, this is not only to uh, ensure that everyone has income, but also because a job is much more than just a source of income. The term energy transition somehow sounds like an easy shift from one reality to another. But here's the thing. Competing demands between climate action and the continued need for energy make the energy transition complex. So we need to remind ourselves of the urgency of the matter. We simply cannot continue using fossil fuels for the sake of the planet. And as Hokum says, we can't leave the responsibility to the individual. It's up to our governments to take significant action. 
Huge efforts are being made in the Nordics and Japan to make the transition more socially equitable. And let's not forget that we as consumers have the power to put pressure on companies and politicians through the daily choices that we make. Do you want to organize your own Nordic Talks event? Check out nordictalks.com for all of the resources that you'll need to get started. I'm Afton Halloran. Thanks for listening.